your word here by which you mean to instruct us, encourage us, challenge us where needed, stir up faith, stir up courage, and we ask that that's the effect of this meditation this morning on your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be active now and impress what you have to say to us into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in our house, we have smoke detectors that sometimes chirp for no apparent reason. I don't really know what it is, whether there's some fluctuation in the power or whatever, but randomly, it'll all of a sudden let out a large beep. Um, our dog does not like that very much. <clears throat> that scares her. The last time it happened, Mary told me I wasn't there. Um, this smoke detector went off, and she ran down, our, our, our dog ran down into the basement and hid under my desk for about two hours and wouldn't come out. That was the place she felt safe. <clears throat> that event came to my mind when I was thinking about the life issue that this scripture addresses. Every one of us has a place that we retreat to in order to feel safe. And I'm not talking about a physical place, but a belief system. Each of us has an answer to the question, where does my hope come from in this world? Where's my safe place? What is going to get me through life with some measure of peace and confidence? When I have trouble paying the bills, when I have regrets about mistakes that I've made in life, when the news is full of disturbing events, each one of us has some place we go, some belief about how to get peace of mind, when life gets difficult, when it gets overwhelming, maybe even when it gets scary. If such and such a thing is in place, then I'm safe, then I can be happy. We all have some version of that, of the answer to that. Well, this passage tells us where the safe place really is. The key principle is in verse 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. In the scriptures, the heart isn't talking about the organ in your chest. The heart is the core of your being. It's the control center of your thoughts and your emotions. It's the inner you. And it can be either weakened or it can be strengthened. When your heart is weakened, it shows itself by being worried, by being fatalistic or guilt-ridden lethargic, depressed, and things like that. It's the natural response to the chirping smoke alarm of life. There are things that bring us down and make us not want to face the life, face the day. But when your heart is strengthened, you experience courage to face trials resolve to keep on going when there's challenges, a cleansed conscience for your sins and failures, peace in chaos, comfort in loss, confidence that you're on the right path, and hopefulness about the future. Those things are the strengthened heart. And that's the way we all want to live, isn't it? But how do we get there? This passage tells us that it's by grace. That's what gets us there. 
It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. We're going to unpack what that means this morning. We're going to see how the Lord tells us how to get a strengthened heart, and then what kind of a life proceeds from that. If you are built up, encouraged, confident, what are we going to do? How am I going to live? That's what this text is going to tell us this morning. So let's dive right into it. How do we get a strengthened heart? Well, first, let's look at the wrong place, <laughs> because that's where verse 9 starts. You don't get a strengthened heart from a man-made religion. That's the first thing we're going to see here. That's how I'm summarizing all of verse 9. It says this, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. So apparently, in the context of the first century Christians to which this letter was written, there was teaching going around about foods. Diverse and strange teachings, they're called. And people were believing these diverse and strange teachings about food and thinking that, well, if I do as I'm told, if I do as I'm taught about foods, then I'm going to be on the right path. Uh, maybe this included Jewish food laws like not eating pork, but that seems unlikely because these Christians were from a Jewish background. That's why it's the letter to the Hebrews. And so those wouldn't be strange teachings to them. More likely, this teaching about food was what Paul warned against in Colossians chapter 2. Because there he said, Why do you submit to regulations? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the, the issue in Colossians, and probably here, is a self-made religion. Human precepts and teachings that turned your use of food into a kind of salvation. If I severely limit what I eat, which is what asceticism is, if I'm going to be really strict and self-controlled, then I'm going to be a holy and righteous person and God will bless me. Or if I'm very careful to eat only certain things, then I'm good and good things will come to me. Something like that was being promoted. That was the teaching, a self-made or a man-made religion. This is the thing that is going to get you through life with confidence that you're doing it right. Now, we might think the obvious connection to our lives today is teachings about food that we know about, right? There are diverse and strange teachings about food in our day and people who are devoted to them. <clears throat> okay, I have a meal replacement shake that I have like most days. It's full of all these healthy things. That are supposed to be super good for you, and you'll live forever if you, if you drink this thing, right? <clears throat> so I have this thing. I have this shake that I drink. When I see the ads, though, for this shake, it's all these beautiful people doing all sorts of amazingly fun things. They're hiking. They're surfing. 
they're running, they're buff. They're, there's nothing wrong with them, and they apparently have no responsibilities because none of them are in an office working. They're all outside somewhere, right? That's what these ads are telling me. They're not just selling a healthy chocolate-favored powder. They're selling a better life because it's all connected to drinking this, this shake. That's how you get there. That's, you might say, okay, that's a diverse and strange teaching, but that's a message, isn't it? That's a salvation message. We're offering you the good life that you want. Here it is. That is an application. However, this is not just about food. This is about any teaching that leads us to something besides the grace of God as that thing which will give us hope and life. It's any human precepts and teachings that say, do what I tell you, and then you will find peace. Then you will be on the right path. It could come from a financial guru who's telling you, here's how you accumulate wealth. It could be a talk show host telling you, this is how you be a good person. Could be a politician promising that your vote for me will solve your societal problems. It could be a church leader who says that your hope is in performing all of God's commands better. We call that legalism. Putting your hope in your own performance instead of in Christ. It could be any of these things. These are all diverse and strange teachings. These are man-made religion that will not give us the life that we so badly want. This is not the place to put our hope in. That is not our safe place. None of these things are the secret sauce for a better life. The meal replacements that I drink won't keep me from dying. <laughs> The bank account will not save your soul. The politician is not going to be your savior. Even our best performances of God's will are still riddled with sin. They're not good enough. They don't meet his requirements. Every man-made religion will fail us in the end. So where do we get this strengthened heart, this ability to meet every challenge in life with confidence, with joy, with actually being on the right path? That's point two. You get a strengthened heart by remembering the cross of Christ. That's how I'm summarizing verses 10 to 12. You get it by remembering the cross of Christ. It's going to take a little explanation here because the imagery is drawn from the life of ancient Israel. The point would be obvious to them, but not so much to us. So let's read verses 10 and 11, and we'll work through the, the logic here. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So we're continuing this idea, this theme of foods, except now there's a shift in the direction of it. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, this is the starting point of explaining what it means to be strengthened by grace. The setting is the Day of Atonement. That's described in Leviticus chapter 16. It's also in chapters 9 and 10 of this letter. 
We're coming back to that subject. The Day of Atonement was the day when the high priest would enter the innermost sanctum of the temple or tent with the blood of the animals who were slain on an altar. The animals had been sacrificed for the sins of the high priest and for the people of Israel. And by bringing their blood into this inner sanctum, into the very presence of God, it represented the death of a substitute on their behalf. The judgment that we deserve for our sins was placed on that animal, and that animal died instead of us. That was the imagery. And having that done, God could then dwell with them in peace. His judgment was carried out on a substitute. The people could be counted as righteous and forgiven, and he could dwell with them, and they would receive his blessing. So that's the Day of Atonement. Now, the blood of these animals was brought into the tent, but what happened to their bodies? What happened to the animals themselves? Well, when it wasn't the Day of Atonement, those bodies would be eaten by the priests. That was how they got their food. They got to partake in a lot of what was offered up to the Lord, but not on the Day of Atonement. They couldn't do that. On the Day of Atonement, those animal bodies had to be taken outside the camp and burned completely. They couldn't eat them. They had no right to eat from those sacrifices. That's recorded in Leviticus 16.27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. So that's the sacrifice in verse 10 that the servants in the tent have no right to eat from. It's a sacrifice for sin burned outside the camp. Now, the writer makes a connection to Jesus from that. He says, this ceremony is pointing to Jesus. Verse 12 says, So, or in like manner, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, Jesus is like that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that's carried outside the camp of Israel. He was crucified on a cross outside the gate of Jerusalem. He was the sin offering who suffered in order to sanctify or make holy the people through his own blood. He became the substitute who died in our place and for our sins. The judgment of God for our sin fell on Him. And that having been done, God now can dwell with us in peace. Those who put their trust in Christ as that sacrifice for sin become His people. He becomes our God. We experience His favorable blessing and His presence. Now, what does any of that have to do with being strengthened by grace? Here's the connection. Our hearts are not strengthened by foods and the strange teachings of self-made religion. Rather, our hearts feed on something better. There is an altar from which we do have a right to eat. It is the cross of Christ on which Jesus died outside the camp. His blood 
sanctifies us, makes us counted as righteous before God. His life is given up for us in order that we might receive all the promises of God as yes and amen, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. It's through the cross of Christ that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1.3, what we get spiritual nourishment from day by day, what we eat from every day is all the blessing that flows to us through Jesus Christ who suffered on the cross. That's what the writer wants us to see here. Jesus spoke of it that way in these terms of food related to himself. Um, He said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's gory kind of imagery. But what's he saying? I'm your source of life. Like food is, I am. Except the food that I I give you, is it springs up to eternal life. It's not perishable. It doesn't go away as soon as you've eaten it. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And we go to that altar outside the camp, that cross, and we get from Jesus all of God's blessing that we need for life. That's what it means for the heart to be strengthened by grace, is when we're doing that. Paul said to Timothy, his disciple, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So the pathway back to sanity and courage when life is difficult and overwhelming is to remember Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and all the blessing that is true for us because of that. We rehearse it. We trust it. We act on it. That's how we get through life. That's how we strengthen our hearts. Let's try to picture how this works. Think about the counterexample first. I think we know what weakens our hearts. Bad news (laughs) weakens our hearts. There's probably a syndrome called online-induced depression. At least there should be. If there isn't, I'm I'm calling it right now. There is such a thing. How many times have you come away reading your news feed where you feel invigorated? (laughs) Uplifted, peaceful. (laughs) I would guess more times than not you come away the opposite. Frustrated, troubled, worried, fearful. Bad news easily affects us. And we have access to lots of bad news. More than any generation that has ever lived, We now know more bad things that are happening in the world than anybody else ever did. And you have access to it 24-7. And you know what? We're not designed to take all that in. We cannot bear the weight of all the bad things that are happening in the world. But we always have access. We know what the effect is. It weakens us. It creates the fear, the, the lethargy, the whatever. But good news has the opposite effect. We know that from life. A job offer can give you instant happiness. (laughs) 
So can a word from the doctor that you have a clean bill of health or a passing grade in a college class or a letter from a friend. Good news strengthens the heart. You feel better after receiving it. There's still some good in this world. I think I can make it another day. The trouble is, we don't always receive good news. And even when we do, it's short-lived. It's, it's like the food that we eat. As Colossians says, it perishes as it is used. It just doesn't last. It, it's never enough. So if we're going to get through the next 10 to 50 years, we need a sure source of encouragement that is not so perishable. And our passage says we have a source of encouragement like that. It's the cross of Christ. Our hearts are strengthened when we choose to remember and believe and act on all that Jesus accomplished for us in the cross. So remembering it looks like this. When you're lonely, you remember we have a friend in Jesus who said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. When you're afraid because of trials. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. <laughs> if he's overcome it and you're in him, then you will overcome when your soul is cast down, when it's in turmoil within you, you take the counsel of Psalm 42.5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. When you're starting to see life slip away through disease, through old age, you remember what Jesus said to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. In John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is how the heart gets strengthened by grace. That's our safe place. That's how we get through life with courage in our circumstances. It's a commitment to keep alive in your heart the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus and all the promises of God. You could call that the cross-centered life. You could call that gospel culture. You could call that fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, like Hebrews 12 says. But the main thing is the benefit is in practicing it, in actually doing it, not letting our heart and our minds spiral down into all the what-ifs and terrible things, but actually grabbing hold of our mind, talking to our soul and say, soul, here's what's true, Jesus and all that we have in him. And then we start climbing back out into courage. It's not rocket science how we do this. Prayerful meditation on the Word of God. That's where it starts. Not just to have a devotion, not just to read through the Bible in a year or two, but to see the grace of God and take refuge in Him. To, to actually, as, as Bill was exhorting us earlier, to know God. Not know things about, but like know Him, press in. This is a living God that we have. This is not a philosophy. God exists. We belong to Him in Christ. We take hold of that. We relate to Him. We develop relationship and heartfelt encouragement with Him. 
That's where it starts. And it's encouraging one another with things like that. In chapter 10, we are told to not neglect meeting together, but encouraging one another. We have to have courage from one another. That's partly how we get courage. The encouragement is to put courage into, and you do that for each other around these truths, because by ourselves, we forget. Left alone, we don't do well. We need to be with each other. And I don't know any more practice, any practice more fruitful for keeping alive in your heart the truths of Scripture than memorizing Scripture. Memorized Scripture is a way to have constant access to grace, <laughs> to, the, to the truth of the cross. It could be just as simple as memorizing Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Like that sentence alone could be the thing that gives you the courage to do the next thing. So the heart's not strengthened by man-made religion, the rules of life that others make or we make for ourselves. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, by the cross. So having laid that foundation, it leads to application. So how do we live when our hearts are strengthened by grace? Three exhortations follow. You might think of these as disciplines for defying and overcoming the darkness and despair of the world. <laughs> like we're going to rage against the darkness. We're going to do it God's way, though. And there's three things that he tells us that flow out of this heart being strengthened by grace. The first one is this, bear reproach as a Christian. Bear reproach. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here's a consistent message in the New Testament. If you follow a Savior who was crucified outside the camp, then expect to bear the reproach that he endured. Reproach is disapproval. If someone disapproves of Jesus and his message of repent and believe in the gospel, then expect them to disapprove of you also. You won't be crucified on a cross, but you may be crucified in social media. And there are other forms of reproach that will be the lot of those who follow Christ. But this passage doesn't say to be afraid of that. In fact, it says, let us go to him outside the camp. Let's identify with Jesus as outsiders, as the outcasts in our world. Let's suffer whatever disapproval results from faithfulness to Christ. It's an honor to do that. He is worthy of it. But more than that, we're given an incentive in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. This is about adopting the mindset of Hebrews eleven thirteen, which is, remember, we're strangers and exiles on the earth. This world's not our true, true home. Here we have no lasting city. Nothing here is permanent. Nothing here is our salvation. But through Christ, we have a city awaiting us, 
a city whose designer and builder is God, a place designed for you and for me, for our everlasting happiness. God himself has planned it, and he knows exactly what will make us happy and keep us happy forever. And that's out there. That's what we seek. Here, nothing lasts. There, everything lasts. God has prepared for us eternal happiness. Knowing that enables us to bear well a little reproach. Or what Paul called this momentary light affliction. It reminds me of something Charles Simeon said in the 1800s. He was a pastor for 49 years in one church in England. Never went anywhere else. <clears throat> and he endured a lot of troubles during that time. The kind of troubles that we could probably relate to, they're not the really extreme things that are happening to some of our brothers and sisters around the world, but kind of the more normal things. So Simeon's this pastor in this church, and he was kind of put there by the denomination, and so they kind of had to, he had to be their pastor. They couldn't say no. But the people in the church said, well, we don't really want you to be our pastor. And so they had pews that had doors on them, and they locked the doors of the pews so that nobody could sit in there and listen to Charles Simeon. They're like, we want this other guy. We don't want you, and we're going to outlast you. And he endured that for years, that kind of stuff. Just like he's pouring out his heart, and they're just like, nope, 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 nope. So he lives, he lives a life like that, 49 years. At the end of his life, he said this to a friend. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. That kind of truth strengthens the heart and enables us to bear the reproach that Christ did. Here's the second thing we do when our hearts are strengthened by grace. We sing and pray. We sing and pray. Verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. To acknowledge God's name means to recognize and respond to the attributes of God. All that he is, all that we have from him through Christ. And this exhortation is to call it to mind and praise God for these things. And to do it continually as a habit of life. Bad stuff happens in the world. Bad stuff happens to you. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to get bitter? Are we going to give in to self-pity? Are we just going to be negative all the time? Not if our hearts are strengthened by grace. Instead, we will sing into the darkness about things that are true and eternal and life-giving. We will choose to praise God with our lips in song and in prayer. In the Lord, there's always something to be thankful for. His sovereign control over all things. His steadfast love for those who trust Him. His provision of every true need that we have as long as we have that need. His mercy in giving us not the judgment we truly deserve, but actually His favor. 
These attributes and these mercies of God are unchanging and they are untouched by the challenges of this world. And so we will sing in defiance of the darkness. And we will do that when we gather. That is why we sing on Sunday mornings. We come here and we sing about things that are eternal and true. We remind ourselves what's eternal and true by singing. (laughs) And it is worth singing about. If it grabs hold of our hearts, that singing will come from within. It will be what we want to do. Sometimes we come in here and we're dead cold and we don't care and we're depressed and whatever. But it's in the singing of things that are true. Singing about the grace of God that we start to warm up and we start to get courage. And then hopefully we leave here ready for today ready for this week, and we're going to do that every week over and over and over again for the rest of our lives (laughs) because we need it over and over and over again for the rest of our lives. We need to sing about what's true. Habakkuk is an example of this. Strange name, who is this guy? Prophet who lived a long time ago, but he lived during a time when things were bad in Israel. Nothing at all that you could point at and go, "That's, that's going well. Everything was bad. So he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. And that ends with a postscript for the choir director on my stringed instruments. It's a song. (laughs) I'm going to sing this. I'm going to sing against the darkness because I'm going to sing about what's true. It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge God's name. Mary is my example for this my wife of 33 years now. She is full of music and praise. It's one of the things that attracted me to her when we were dating. She was off to a trip to Taiwan, a missions trip. She was going to be gone for the summer while we were dating, and she left me a cassette tape of her singing praise songs. And, like, I was enamored. Like, (laughs) it was for me to remember her when she was gone. And I was thinking, what a beautiful voice. What a catch she would be if I could swing this thing, you know? (laughs) But you know what's more beautiful than the voice is the heart that wants to continually sing praise to God. And we can all have that if we're enamored with Jesus Christ. One more thing we do from a heart strengthened by grace is that we do good. We do good. This is verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's that word sacrifice again, except this time it's not about sacrifices for sin. It's about sacrificial good works in the name of the Lord as representatives of Christ. God's grace isn't given to us just to be self-centered and self-indulgent. It's given for us to do good out of our love for God and neighbor. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said of the last days that lawlessness will be increased, 
the love of many will grow cold. But grace in Christ makes us buck that trend. We move towards people with a warm heart. We share what we have. We want other people to encounter the reality of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But there's a challenge in doing that because the text says we don't neglect this, meaning we tend to neglect this. We don't necessarily do good and share what we have. There's lots of reasons for that, but one in particular that I would point to is a sense of futility. There are so many needs in the world. There's so much that needs to be done. There's so much suffering and want, so much evil and the effects of evil. And we can get overwhelmed. My little efforts don't seem like much. It's just a drop in the bucket. We can think it doesn't make any difference. So why bother? To that, I would just remind us that faithfulness, not fruitfulness, is our guiding principle. The text says do good, and that in itself is pleasing to God. The outcome of our serving others is not our responsibility. God will take care of that. Doing good is good in and of itself, and that makes it worth doing. More could be said, but let's stop there. Bottom line from all of this, what's our path to sanity and peace and courage in a world of trouble? What's the safe place for our souls? It's not man-made advice about how to live. It's remembering the cross of Christ and all that's ours through Jesus. And as we keep that alive in our hearts, we have the strength to defy the darkness and despair. We'll bear reproach well. We'll sing and pray. And we'll do good. That's what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. That's what it looks like to know that here... We have no lasting city, and that's okay because we seek the city that is to come, and it's going to be so good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your word puts strength into our souls because it taps us into the realities of permanence, joy, fixing everything that's broken, all these things that are our lot as believers in Christ. Would you help us to keep those things alive in our heart? By your Holy Spirit, sink these words into our souls and help us to go from here ready to bear reproach where, where that happens, to sing with joyful lips, to do good. Empower us for that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.